So grateful to have all of you here on Easter. And I thought long and hard about what text I wanted to teach out of today. I knew I wanted to speak about Jesus rising from the dead. And so I considered naturally the gospel narratives, but I I ended up going a different direction today because I don't want to focus merely on the, the actual event of the resurrection. I want to look at what our response is to the resurrection. So would you turn with me to Romans chapter 10? Romans chapter 10. You know, Easter, like, well, like Christmas, has sort of been co-opted by the world. Is that true? The world's got its own mascots for these days. Christmas has got Santa Claus. Easter's got the Easter bunny. Isn't it amazing how far we drift from the original source material? I mean, can you get any farther from a baby in a manger than a fat guy in a red suit? Can you do that? I don't know. And, and, and I don't think you can get much farther from an empty tomb than a rabbit that delivers eggs. And so, uh, and I'm not on an anti-bunny crusade. My kids are going to have an Easter egg hunt when we get home. It's all fun. But even they know what this day's all about. One of them said to me the other day, you know, Dad, it's not about the bunny. It's about the lamb. Amen. I thought that was pretty good, you know. They heard that somewhere, I'm sure. But, you know, you don't have to refrain from buying into the secularized version of this day to get it wrong. You can still get it wrong even if you know what this day is technically. Every Easter, churches like this one prepare for a large crowd. We know on this day you're going to have a larger than normal crowd no matter what church you're in. And the reason is there are going to be some people in that crowd that don't typically come to church. They don't visit church most of the rest of the year. And by the way, we're very glad you're here Uh, Whether you come most of the rest of the year or not, we're glad you're here. But the reason some of these folks are here today is because they've got a semblance of religion and they want to affirm whatever religiosity they have uh, by acknowledging some vague truth on this day that they believe makes them religious. But the fact is that this day has about as much to do with religion as it has to do with eggs or rabbits. It's really got nothing to do with religion. And if you look with me in Romans 1, we're going to see as we journey through this that Paul is talking about a very religious people. It's a people near and dear to his heart. It's his own people. It's the Jewish people. And he's got a passion for this nation. It's a nation that does not know Jesus Christ, which is ironic because Jesus is the Jewish Messiah. And yet they rejected him in Paul's day. They, they largely reject Jesus as Messiah today, even though he's their Messiah. In general, there is a, a, re, a rejection of Christ among the Jews today. It's almost like it's within their very moral constitution to reject the knowledge of Christ as Messiah. But they are religious. And in houses of worship like this, around this nation and around the world, there are similarly religious people who are gathering doing their duty, darkening the door of the church on this very, very important day because they think it's expected of them because of what religion they are. And if religion were enough, they'd be just fine. But my friends, religion is not enough. If religion were enough, well, there would never have been a Calvary. And there would never have needed to be an empty tomb. And so we're going to look at that today. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, I ask your blessing upon our time on this day where we declare boldly that Jesus is alive. Lord, you have been alive uh, ever since 
you, you rose and, and that empty tomb, that, that tomb was vacated, God. And so you live and in you we live and move and have our being. And I pray that, Lord, as we gather and open the word today, that it would be illuminated for us, that we would receive it, God, but also that we would see the truth that is there and that we would understand what it really means to rely on you. And we pray your blessing upon us in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, we're going to listen to Paul's heart here in Romans 10. And I want to show you, first of all, in your notes, why religion isn't enough. Why religion isn't enough. He starts in verse 1. Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them, for his people, for the Jews, is that they may be saved. That word saved, we throw that, a lot, or we throw that around a lot in church today. It's not just a cultural term, it's a biblical term. It means that they're spiritually rescued. To be saved is to be redeemed, to be restored. And Paul is passionate that his Jewish brothers come to faith in Christ. He yearns for it. And, and Paul believes undoubtedly in the sovereignty of God. I know that he believes that God will do what God wills to do, but he has a deep, deep longing that his brethren would come to faith in Christ. And here's why he's passionate for them in verse two. He says, for I bear, I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. He says they've got a zeal. They are very sincere in their faith, but it's not according to knowledge. And here's what I want you to see in your notes is that religion is not enough because first of all, you can be sincere and be wrong. Do you believe that? You can be sincere, but you can be sincerely wrong. These people of whom Paul speaks are greatly religious. They have a passion. They are deeply sincere, but they are sincerely wrong. And that's Paul's view of the truth is that you don't need, uh, you, you, it's not enough that you believe in something. It's got to be literally true. Just because you believe it doesn't make it true. Boy, is that a message we need in our world today. Is, that, is there some of that going on that people are believing something? That is not true. The people are believing perhaps that God made them a certain way that he did not. And just because they want this, that it's so and it's not. And this has always been the case. About a year ago, I attended a football game. My son was a running back for his high school. It was his senior year. And I'd gone to games all year with my trusty iPhone uh, as a dutiful dad documenting every play. You know, I didn't know if he had a future as a football player in college or not, but just to be uh, on the safe side, I thought I'd make a highlight reel. And so I'm out there like dads are, and I'm recording every time he touches the ball. And he was on the receiving team as well. And he'd made some good plays. And then halftime came. And I made my way to the concession stand. And I got myself a nice, juicy, is my wife in here? I got some carrot sticks from the concession stand, you see. Very healthy. And so I'm coming back to the visitor's section, and I hear a cheer go up from the visitor's section. I, I was late. I had missed the opening kick of the second half. And the reason they were cheering is that my son on the receiving team had received the football, and he was making a run for the end zone and he was untouched and it looks like he's going to go the distance. And so I put my carrots down <laughs> and as my son starts to run by, I realize my phone is in my pocket. I don't have enough time to pull it out, find the camera and record this. And so instinct takes over and I just start running with him. I'm just running with my boy, just me and my boy, and we're going to the end zone. And I, and I know this doesn't make any sense, but in the moment, it made perfect sense. I'm thinking, I'll just meet him in the end zone, 
and I'll capture the victory shot right there and we'll celebrate together. And so follow me here. In that moment, I sincerely believed that this 48-year-old man at the time is going to keep up with this 18-year-old stallion. (laughs) I believed it, that I was going to keep pace. My body believed it. And we were both wrong. (laughs) I'm trying to match this kid stride for stride, and in the middle of one of those strides, my leg just says, nope. And I go end over end. I mean, I hit the ground hard, okay? I pray that somebody did not get this on camera, all right? And I sprung to my feet instinctively as I did when I was a younger man. And as soon as I got to my feet, I recognized something was horribly wrong. The trainer comes up to me. He'd seen the spill, and he goes, Mr. Grimm, are you all right? And I had gotten the wind knocked out of me. And so he asked me if I'm okay, and I go, I got the wind, I got the wind. He's like, I'm sorry, I didn't understand what you said. I said, I got the wind, I got the wind. You been there? And so I missed the shot. We had to celebrate the touchdown later, and it was a touchdown. And so uh, I tried to tough it out. Man, I was hurting. I finally went to the doctor a couple days later, and he said, uh, Mr. Grimm, you've got a broken collarbone. I had to wear a sling for three weeks. People would come up to me. They're like, wow, how'd you do that? I go, football game. <laughs> Almost made it to the end zone. Yeah. You can be sincere, but you can be wrong. Sincerity is not enough. Paul says, my people have zeal, a great zeal for God. They're trying to earn heaven. They're trying to do good deeds and and, and operate in obedience to the, the law. But he says, it's not in accordance with knowledge. They're trying to earn salvation. That is not what God says about salvation. And he explains why. In your notes, this is the next point. You can seem spiritual, but be filled with pride. Pride. It's, it's not that these people are stupid. It's that pride has darkened their eyes. They're blind. He says in verse 3, for being ignorant of the righteousness of God. They're ignorant. That's not stupidity. They're blinded. They're darkened. They cannot see the righteousness of God. If they could, they'd be humbled. They would recognize just how inferior uh, they are in their feeble deeds. They would be like the prophet Isaiah who said, woe is me, I'm a man of unclean lips. They would fall down on their face before a holy God and beg for mercy, but pride, pride has blinded them. That's why they're off kilter. They're out of sync and their corrupt heart has darkened them to this truth. And he goes on to verse three and says that they're seeking to establish their own. Their own what? their own righteousness. They are blind by pride to the righteousness of God, and so they seek to establish their own. That is what a blind person does. They don't fall down and beg for mercy. They try to create their own standard. And you could ask people on the street today, if you died right now, would you go to heaven? And a lot of them would say, yeah, I believe I would. Really, tell me why. Well, I... And there's that word I, and then you get the resume. You get this long list of all their deeds, all the things that they've done right, and it's a relative list because if they handed you that resume and you could study it, you would, you would conclude upon reading that they are marginally better than Jeffrey Dahmer. They're marginally better than Ted Bundy. They've got the edge on Hitler or Stalin, all right? It's a relative righteousness, but is that the standard of heaven? 
Just, you know, does God say, you know, just be better than, than a cannibal? Just be better than a, than a malevolent dictator? Is that God's standard? What if God's standard is God himself? Well, then you and your pathetic little resume are in a whole heap of trouble. You've got problems because you're not it. You're not good enough. And, 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 and we sort of exacerbate the problem as a culture because we're constantly feeding each other a load of enablement. You are enough. Have you heard that? You are enough. I am enough. You're perfect just the way you are. Let me say this with all the love and compassion I can muster. No, you're not. No, no, you're not. You're not perfect the way you are. That is not your goal, to be the best you you can be. Uh, If you were perfect, my job would be pointless. Like, we should just go home right now, okay? Either that or my job should change. My job should shift to be one of constant affirmation of the great potential of humanity. And that's not called Christianity. That's called secular humanism, okay? And today, there are way too many people who are building what they think are fortresses of their own morality, of their own goodness, their own benevolence. And in actuality, they're just cobbling together these these flimsy little lean-tos made out of the most fragile twigs and branches you can imagine. But he says they seek to establish their own righteousness, and it leads to something. It leads to something. He says they did not submit to God's righteousness. See? And when you don't submit to God, you know what that's called? That's called disobedience. And so by living according to your own standard, you are living in opposition to God. You're not getting closer to God by being moral and relying on that morality for salvation. You're getting further away from God. You're getting further and further away. And so in your notes, another reason that religion is not enough is that you can appear moral and be disobedient. You can think you're doing it all right, but you are exactly the opposite of what God wants. And people disobey him by embracing their own standard, and they're very prideful about that. That is the nature of man, is to trust himself, to find his own way, to rely on his own instincts. I took piano when I was in high school. I waited uh, a lot later than, than some people do to start piano. And so uh, I, got, I met with my teacher. She gave me this book. She said, you got to learn this piece. I want you to play it for me next week. I took it home. I looked at the piece. I said, oh, yeah, yeah, I got, I got this. And I closed it. I was like, I'm going to be fine. And, and so I went into my piano lesson. I sat down. Teacher's right there. I opened my book. She says, you ready to play your piece? I said, yes, ma'am. And I played the piece. And I just kind of looked at her and, and smiled. And she said, okay, what was wrong with that? I said, but, uh, what, what, what do you, I don't know, what do you mean? She goes, you didn't look at your music. I said, I know. She goes, you, you memorized it? I said, well, yeah. She goes, ah, but you memorized it wrong. You played perfectly what you thought it was, but you were playing it wrong from memory. And if you would have just looked at the music on the sheet in front of you, you would have understood that what you were doing was not what was written. And so often in life, we just operate according to our best instincts, and it's not what is written in God's word. And we're avoiding the standard. We're creating our own standard. Man does what he thinks is right, but Scripture says in the end it leads 
to death. We've got to look at the standard. What's the standard? Paul tells us in verse four. He says, for Christ, that's the standard. Christ is the standard. He's not just better than Jeffrey Dahmer. He's not just slightly better than Hitler. No, no, he is the standard. He is, as Paul says here, the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. That means Jesus terminates the moral law in God's word as a means for righteousness. Now, did God ever intend for the law to be our means of righteousness? Did God put his law in the Bible so that we could just follow it and become righteous? No, no. The Old Testament saints weren't saved by obedience and New Testament saints are saved by contrast, uh, by grace. No, no, no. Man has always been redeemed through faith in a standard greater than himself. You see, the law is not a means by which we earn the favor of God. The law is a mirror. You look into it and you see your condition. You look in a mirror, you see your face is dirty. Now you have that awareness and you can go and you wash yourself in the living water that is Jesus Christ. That is what the law is for. And so we are to look at the standard of Jesus. When we see Jesus who who kept God's law perfectly, we're to look at him and go, I cannot be that. I cannot attain to that level. There's no way. Years ago at our little church in San Diego, we had a, a Christian music group come in, and they were some of the greatest musicians in the world. No joke. You've got one of the greatest living bass players of all time, a man named Abraham Laboriel. If you're a bassist, you might know that name. There was a saxophonist, a wind player named Justo El Mario. They were phenomenal. And they had a keyboardist, a jazz keyboardist. His name was Keith uh, Greg. His name was Greg Matheson. And they called ahead. They said, hey, we're trying to lighten our gear. Uh, do you have a keyboard there that Greg could play? And I was the worship pastor at the time. And I said, yeah, I got an 88-key studio Korg uh, Triton keyboard. He would play that. He came in, and that's what he played. He played my keyboard. And I sat there listening with my jaw on the floor. He played notes I didn't even know were on that thing. And when he was done, I didn't want to touch that keyboard. It had experienced greatness, and I would be a huge letdown. Okay? And you know who understood how I felt once upon a time? A Catholic monk named Martin Luther. Martin Luther, he lived back in the 1500s. He was a Catholic monk. He was obsessed with being good enough for God. And he tried and tried and tried. And he, he realized he, there was no way he could get there. He just could not be good enough. He just had this perpetual sense of, of ineptitude, of inadequacy. And he fasted constantly. And he prayed. He fasted so much he developed intestinal problems. And he would just be filled with anxiety over his sinfulness and his failure to be righteous. And whenever he would go to confession, his priest buddies in the cathedral, they would see him coming and they'd run from the booth because they knew if they were in the booth to take confession when Martin got in there, they'd be there all night. And his friends started to worry about him. And the church started to worry about him. They thought he was going crazy. And so they did with Martin Luther what you do when someone is crazy. They made him a college professor. <laughs> and they sent him to Wittenberg, Germany. And they thought this would be the best thing for him. We'll just put him in a classroom, surround him with undergrads. He'll feel infinitely better about himself. And his job there was to teach the letters of Paul. One problem, he'd never read them. And he started with the first letter that Paul wrote. It's called Romans. 
And we're reading it today. And he started in chapter 1, and he looked at verse 16, which says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel. It is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. And he said, uh-oh. Because the greatest horror of his life was the righteousness of God. He'd, he'd read about it, he'd seen it in the moral law, and he understood that it was a standard he could not reach. He always felt that God was mad at him. Can you relate to that? He'd always felt that God was getting ready to lay the hammer down on him if he ever did something wrong. A lot of us grow up with that sense, no matter what kind of church background we have. And he read on in verse 17, it says, for in the righteousness of God, for in it, in what? In the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. And he said, hold the phone. The righteousness of God is in the law, and I can't be good enough by keeping the law. Now this is telling me the righteousness of God is revealed in the gospel? How is it revealed? And he read on, it's revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. And he had an epiphany. Righteousness does not come from obedience. It does not come from doing. It does not come from work. It comes from trusting in what Christ did. What the work that Jesus did on the cross. Righteousness is a gift. You don't earn it. And he said, at once the gates of paradise opened. And that's what Paul's talking about when he says Jesus is the end of the law for righteousness. Jesus said, I've come that you might have life and you might have it more abundantly. Not through work. Not through obedience. Because his life, in your notes, Jesus' life was perfect. Jesus is enough, you see. We've looked at why religion is not enough. Now we see why Jesus is enough. And the first reason is his life was perfect. Unlike your life, unlike my life. He didn't come to give you more to do in order to please God, uh, to, to earn favor with God. Jesus didn't come to, to lay more stuff on you that you're not capable of pulling off. We needed a substitute. God gave us the law to recognize our inadequacy, and he sent his son to be the provision for that inadequacy. We needed a savior. He's the end of the law for righteousness. Paul says, let me explain what I mean. In verse 5, he says, for Moses, for Moses writes about the righteousness based on the law. He's saying even back in Moses' day, you had people that were pursuing righteousness through obedience to the law. Uh, he said he writes of the, about that, that the person who does the commandments shall live by them. You see, back in Leviticus, Moses said, if you're relying on the, on the law for righteousness, whoever does them must live by them. You understand? And what that means is it's not enough if you are counting on the law to make you righteous, it's not enough that you simply know the law. It's not enough that you simply have memorized the law. It's not enough that you even recognize that the law has a divine origin. If you're relying on it for righteousness, you have to obey it. You've got to keep it. How much of it? All of it. Every syllable. Uh, how, how often? All the time. Constantly. Without fail. For how long? Indefinitely. Forever. Perfect. It's not, you, it's not you, you don't just get close. This isn't horseshoes. 
It's not cl- close is not enough. You got to nail it. And you can't do that. But if you could, let's say hypothetically, you could. If you could, you are out of place in this room. You are a fish out of water in this room. You know why? We got this big old cross back here. What does that symbolize? It symbolizes payment for sin for imperfect people. Did you know the church is filled with imperfect people? Did you know that? I get a kick out of people who say, well, I don't go to church. There's too many hypocrites. And I'm like, yeah. If that's your feeling, don't come to my gym when I'm working out. Okay? Yeah, I don't go to that gym anymore. You see all those flabby people in there? Who do they think they are? People who need to go to the gym. That's who they are, right? We go to church to learn and to grow and to become more like Jesus because we're not perfect. If we were and we gathered like this, we wouldn't have a cross as our symbol. We might have like the Ten Commandments as our symbol. But we're not perfect. We ain't there. It's not us. And so Paul uses uh, Moses to, to create a contrast. Righteousness through the law, and now in verse six, but the righteousness based on faith, on faith says. Meaning, there's a position before God that is not based on you. It's based on trusting in Jesus Christ. And then he's going to quote from the book of Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy, uh, duet nomas in the Greek, it means second law. So the, the, the Israelites that fled Egypt, they wander 40 years. The first generation dies off. Their children are about to enter the promised land. And so they, they reread to this new generation the highlights of the law that Moses gave their parents. And it's the second reading of the law, Deuteronomy, right here. And in that, they are told, this is truth. It is enough. It is adequate You don't need to look for more beyond what God has said. We're about to enter Canaan. There's going to be pagan peoples with different spiritual worldviews. Don't go looking into what they believe to find additional truth. You've got it. God has delivered to you. This is enough. You don't have to go beyond it. Okay, You don't have to ascend uh, to any level to find truth. And that's true today. We don't have to look into Buddhism. We don't have to look into Islam. We don't have to look into Hinduism. You don't have to study the philosophers for additional truth. Uh, You know, Plato and Socrates and Aristotle and Descartes and Rousseau and Kant and all these people. You don't have to look into Eastern religion and transcendental meditation and Kabbalah or the Enneagram or any of that stuff. You want to study philosophy from an academic standpoint, that's fine. But don't expect to find truth in addition to God's word. And so Moses was telling these people, this is the word of God. And Paul is taking that, putting it in the context of this group. And he says, do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven. He's saying, you don't need to go beyond what's been done for you. You don't need to go up to God. God came down to you. And he follows that up to say, that is to bring Christ down. God put on flesh He came down here to live amongst us slobs so that we would know the way. And then in verse 7, he says, don't say that, but also don't say, who will will descend into the abyss? This is the opposite extreme of heaven. The abyss signified death and darkness. And he's saying, 
you don't have to attain uh, great accomplishments or, or accolades or, or some heightened awareness to get to God. Neither do you have to die for your sin. You don't have to pay for your sin. Why not? Because he goes on, he says, that is to bring Christ up from the dead. There's someone who already died for your sin. There's someone who already paid for your sin. He died in your place. But the best news is he didn't stay dead. He came up from the grave, which is the second thing in your, in your notes under why Jesus is enough. His death was temporary. His death was temporary. He is risen. Amen? And, and some of you may, may, may hear me say these things. You may say, well, are you belittling sin? It sounds like you're make, making it sound like, uh, like, like sin is not a serious thing to God. No, no, sin is very serious to God. Let me tell you something. It's so serious to God that he sent his only son to take the sin of the world, all of your sin, and he became that sin, and God punished that sin. That's how serious sin is to God. And it's not as though I'm saying that God does not require righteousness. He absolutely requires righteousness. But here's the thing. Your righteousness doesn't cut it. He requires perfect righteousness, and that's found only in Jesus Christ. If I were good enough, it would be called Scottianity. All right? But it's not. It's Christianity. We are Christians because his righteousness is the only thing that is good enough. He did it all. He gets all the glory. We get all the benefit. And in verse 8, Paul says, but what does it say? The word is near you. It's in your mouth, in your heart. That is the word of faith that we proclaim. What do we proclaim? We proclaim the gospel. The gospel. And here's all you need to do with the gospel. Verse 9, because, listen here, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, Okay, You confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord. That means you acknowledge him as Lord. He is God in the flesh. He came down divinity in the form of humanity, and we confess that he is who he said he was. You confess that. You acknowledge that. He is the way, the truth, the life. No one comes to the Father except through him. There is no one like him. You confess that and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. What happens? You will be saved, rescued, redeemed, restored. Christ has risen from the dead. You must believe that Christ has risen from the dead. You say, do I have to believe that he literally, physically rose from the dead? Yes, It was a literal resurrection. What does Paul say the gospel is? This is the gospel that we preach to you. He says that that Christ died for our sins. According to the scriptures, he was buried. That's a literal death. You don't bury somebody that's not dead. If you do, they're going to be real mad. And he rose according to the scriptures. It's a literal physical death, and it's a literal physical resurrection. You must believe that to be saved. Why? Because in your notes, we don't just believe in a Savior, but a risen Savior. Do we have a risen Savior? We don't just have a Savior that died for our sins. That's not a Savior. He had to come back from the grave. If he's dead, he's not a Savior. He's just a dead philosopher. But we have a risen Lord, a risen Savior. 
And I could give you loads of, of evidence of ap- apologetic argument as to the fact that Christ rose from the grave. I read a quote from Chuck Colson the other day, the former Watergate defendant. He was convicted in the Watergate uh, 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 legal matter. He turned to Christ while in prison. He eventually became an evangelical leader. Here's what he said. He said, I know the resurrection is a fact. And Watergate proved it to me. How? Because 12 men testified they had seen Jesus raised from the dead, and then they proclaimed that truth for 40 years, never once denying it. Everyone was beaten, tortured, stoned, put in prison. They would not have endured that if it weren't true. Watergate embroiled 12 of the most powerful men in the world, and they couldn't keep alive for three weeks. He said, you're telling me 12 apostles could keep alive for 40 years? Absolutely impossible. And I could give you loads of that kind of quotation. I could quote all this different stuff, give you all kinds of arguments. Some of it might be interesting to you. Some of it might help you overcome obstacles to belief. But hear me, none of those arguments are going to bring you to faith in Christ. You're going to come to faith in Christ because the Holy Spirit is drawing you and you respond to that and you admit that you're a sinner and that you need a Savior. That's what it's going to take. You believe, you confess, and you will be saved. And here's why, verse 10. For with the heart... One believes and is justified. You know what it means to be justified? It means God has declared you righteous. He looks at you, he sees righteousness. How? Because he takes the righteousness of Christ, who was perfect. And by faith you believe in what Christ did, and God takes his righteousness and puts it into you. And now you're righteous. It's as though you lived a perfect life. Did you? No way, but Christ did, and his righteousness is applied to you. It is credited to your account, and this is why Jesus is enough. In your notes, his righteousness is available by faith. You don't have to do anything for it. You just believe, and his righteousness is credited to you, and now it's as though you have always been righteous. My son came to town after Christmas. We took him to the bank. And we set up a checking account for him. Now, did we set him up a checking account so that he could deposit hard-earned money into that bank account of his? No, 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 no. No, we, we, we got him a checking account for those instances in which he calls home and he says, Father, wouldst thou bestow upon me the indigent penniless child that I am who, who does not do any productive uh, work for compensation, but who has great need, would you be so kind as to grant me the boon of financial gifting so that I might enjoy life? <laughs> and then I go to the bank and I say, good banker, would you be so kind as to Dip into my account, my account, I, who am productive, <laughs> who earn for a living, who is a contributing member of society, who votes, who is the breadwinner of the home and the hunter-gatherer, would you please be so good as to take from my account and to withdraw it and place it, credit it to the account of my child who may then act as though he earned it. (laughs) Though that be not the truth. 
Why do we do that? Because we don't want him passing Monopoly bills at Burger King, all right? Now he's got money in that account. He's got his debit card. When he goes to the establishment, will they take his debit card in a nanosecond? Absolutely. Why? Because there's money in that account. And the funds in that account, the source of those funds is legally valid. Folks, it's the same with our righteousness. When God looks at you, you are accepted in his sight because of Jesus. Not because of you, but you are as, as righteous as he is because you have believed on him and that is accredited to your account. And so with the heart we believe, we are justified, made righteous, and Paul says, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. You confess and are saved. Now that's not a secondary thing that you have to do. It's not a specific phrase you've got to utter. There's no formulaic you know, incantation that you make right there. The confession is just, it's just a natural outflow of the salvation by faith. It just happens. It's an authenticator, really. You ever been around a new Christian? You can't shut them up. They will share what God did for them with anybody. They'll witness to a tree stump, man. They will annoy the snot out of their old running buddies. They're so happy about what Jesus did. It's just a, it's just a reality of your salvation. And then in verse 11, Paul quotes from Isaiah, for the scripture says, everyone who believes in him, who? Everyone. And this is another reason why Jesus is enough. His grace is inclusive. His grace is inclusive in your notes. Acts 17, God overlooks the times of ignorance, but now commands all people to repent, all people. All people. In scripture, we see every demographic come to Christ. You've got children. You've got the disabled. You've got the blind. You've got adulteresses. You've got Pharisees. You've got prostitutes. You've got tax collectors. You've got people with blood on their hands. Hello, Saul of Tarsus. And they all come to Christ, and not one of them is cast away. Not one of them is turned away. John 6 says, all that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. He's not going to cast you out. Are you worried about that? If I come to Jesus, he's going to reject me. Some people are like, I can't come to Christ. i got to clean my life up first. Uh-uh. doesn't work like that. You come to Jesus as you are. He cleans your life up. That's right. And everyone who believes in verse 11, he says, will not be put to shame. You will not be put to shame. The word there has the connotation in the Greek of being ashamed. You will not be ashamed. Has anybody ever told you, that they were ashamed of you because you let them down? Maybe when you were a kid, your parents might have said this to you. I'm so ashamed. I, I trusted you, and you, you, you let us down. You didn't show up, you know? No one will say that of God. No one will say that of God. You will not be ashamed of God. He will not let you down. Why? Because in your notes, his salvation is reliable. It's reliable. You can count on it. You put your faith in Christ, he will not let you down. He will be there for you on the day of redemption. You won't be ashamed of him. You say, well, I'm, I'm ashamed of myself. I'm too ashamed to come to him. I'm too weak to carry on this Christian life. That's why God gives you a rebirth. That's why he gives you a new nature. He puts his spirit within you. You say, but I'll always be in doubt. That's why his spirit will testify to your spirit that you belong to him. You'll be constantly reminded of that. You say, but I've angered God. That's why Christ satisfied the wrath of God in your place. You say, but I, but I owe God. No, you don't. Christ paid your debt. You don't owe anything. 
to God. You see, but I failed to obey God. You know what? We've all failed. You know who has never failed and who never will fail? Jesus Christ. He has never failed. He will not fail you. You could put your faith in him. He rose again. Trust in the one who died for you and who rose from the grave for you. I'm going to invite our worship team and our prayer team to come down to the front right now. And in just a moment, we're going to sing, we're going to sing a song, a powerful song. And you're going to have an opportunity on this, this very special day. I want, to, I want to give you an opportunity to respond to the gospel, to the resurrection of Jesus Christ, to what he did for you. And so during this verse that we're about to sing, I'm going to invite you to get up from where you are and to come down here and to stand down at the front. And it doesn't have to be for salvation. It can be for anything that you're enduring right now that you're going through that you need prayer for. You are invited. You can come down to the front. We will pray for you. We want you to know that God is, is, is here with you right now. You are not alone. I heard a story about some sailors Hundreds of years ago, they'd been sailing for weeks and weeks, and they were off the coast of South America. And they were out of supplies. They'd been at sea for so long, they'd run out of food, they'd run out of water. They're dying of starvation, of thirst. They've got to get to shore. And they could see the shore, but they can't get there. There is some invisible current that is keeping them at sea. And they're just drifting along the coast, but they cannot pull that ship into shore no matter how hard they try. And it's maddening because they can see the shore and they can even see the natives standing on the shore and the natives can see them and they must have recognized the peril that these sailors were in. Perhaps it was something that they'd seen before. And they're motioning, the natives are motioning to these sailors and they're, they're directing them to put their hands in the water and to bring it up to their mouth to drink from the water and, and the sailors dismiss that they think oh these 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 silly natives these primitives don't they understand you you, you, you can't drink seawater and so these sailors continue to labor to get that ship to land so they'll survive but they just continue to drift down that coastline miles and miles and miles and in their desperation they're about to to give up and to surrender to death and one of them just reaches down in desperation and, and brings a, a cupped handful of water to his face and he drinks and it's fresh water. You see, the current that kept them away from the shore was not an ocean current. They had unwittingly discovered the mouth of the Amazon River, the greatest freshwater rush in, on planet Earth. And the whole time that they labored, they were surrounded by life-giving water. And that's what the natives were trying to tell them. Just reach down. Just, just take life. You will survive. Why die? There's no need to die. All you have to do, it's there. It's there for the taking. But they'd continued to labor and to strain and to rely on their own effort to survive, but to no avail. And life was right there for the taking. I want you to bow with me right now.
Maybe I've just described you. Maybe you have worked and worked and worked and worked and you have come to the realization I'm not enough. It's not good enough. And I'm tired. I'm tired of trying to earn, and earn the favor of God. And now I realize what can give me life has been there all along. And now I understand. And now I'm ready to receive it. If that's you today, you've got an opportunity to respond to that. Let me pray for you. Before we sing, Heavenly Father, I pray for everyone in this room who needs to turn to you, who knows it in their heart. This is the moment. This is the day. Don't let them tarry anymore, God. Would you just convict them by your spirit? Would you move in their heart? Would you, would you lift them from their place? Would you bring them down to this altar as we sing, Oh, come to the altar. Would they be compelled, God, to come to this altar to get things right with you? For anyone else in this room, Lord, perhaps it's not a salvation issue. Maybe it's a struggle. Maybe it's an ongoing familiar habitual sin that they wrestle with. Maybe it's a broken relationship that needs healing. Lord, whatever it is, you see it, you know it, you are the answer for it. Bring them to you today to rely fully upon the one who will never fail. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you-